Hello, I'm Suzanne Sue, Director and MLRO, Project Imagine, and the Professionalism Steering Committee Chair for CFA UK. Welcome to the latest episode of the CFA in Conversation podcast. This is the show for investment professionals, focusing on a whole manner of topics and interesting insights that are affecting the profession today. In this episode, I'm talking to Serena Espuete from the CFA Institute about financial promotions on social media, influencers and their trends, along with the impacts and dangers they may pose. Serena is an affiliate to the Research and Policy Center at CFA Institute. Her research focuses on the future of the finance industry, including sustainable finance regulations and the role of and regulations around such new intermediaries as social media influencers in the dissemination of investment information. CFA Institute has been conducting a study on the use of social media financial influencers or finfluencers in investment promotions and recommendations. The study examines how younger investors engage with finfluencers based on a sample of 110 sources of content on YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram across three jurisdictions, the United States, UK, and EU, with a focus on France, Germany, and the Netherlands. So, Serena, I was wondering whether you could start with what are finfluencers? Sure. So Finfluencers are social media content creators whose niche is personal finance, which often includes investing. Um, so Finfluencer, it's an amalgamation of the term financial influencer um, and the influencers themselves are another recent entity. Um, but Finfluencers typically have a large online following and presence. Um, they're often sponsored by investment companies or they're marketing affiliates of investment companies and they may promotes products and services on behalf of these companies. Um, so generally, social media influencers are thought to be particularly influential in affecting the purchasing decisions of their audiences. And what trends are we seeing with influencers? We're seeing young people in particular are relying on Finfluencers to source some of their investment information. So our study looked at Gen Z investors and we noted that Finfluencers were particularly important in terms of investment idea generation, um, but also they were particularly influential in the decision to first start investing. Um, so we are seeing that Finfluencers in some ways make learning about investing more accessible to their audience audiences, they might use graphs and charts, and we think this is part of the appeal. Um, they're often discussing investment products like ETFs and index funds, um, so a, a greater focus on the passive investments. Um, however, we are also seeing influencers stray into regulated territory, and some are promoting products, but also uh, making investment recommendations. So recently, um, as you know, um, CFA Institute and CFA Society UK answered a, a consultation on social media promotions as there is potentially some issue with influencers who are out of scope of the regulations, we're not acting with firms and um, how they may promote and market products without being authorised to do so. Um, we're also seeing some trends with regulators responding to influencer activities. So, for example, the Dutch AFM has contacted influencers to remind them 
of the rules surrounding financial promotions and recommendations. The Australian Securities Investment Commission has also issued guidance on the types of statements influencers can make, which are acceptable statements and some which are unacceptable statements to make when discussing investment products and services. Um, recently, FINRA has also issued guidance on how firms engage social media influencers when they have their affiliate marketing and referral programs. So we're seeing trends uh, in terms of how influencers are used the types of content they make, but also um, what regulators' responses to influencers have been so far. Um, it's fair to say that not all influencers are straying into regulated territory. Um, there, are, there are many who simply provide guidance, but the issue comes in when they do um, start to engage in activities that are regulated. I guess I've read a bit about the, um, you know, some of the blowups or outright frauds um, in the newspaper. But I was wondering if there's anything particular that makes looking at influence or influence more timely now than it's been in the past. Yes, um, potentially the rate of social media growth. And I think year on year, we're seeing that the number of social media users globally continue to increase as technological diffusion takes place. Um, so I think potentially um, the main difference between sort of potentially in the past and what is the case now is the scale of social media use, which also brings with it the potential for new intermediaries such as influencers to promote products and services. And when you have that activity going on at a greater scale, um, the risks potentially become magnified. And my impression is that CFA Institute started doing this study long before the FCA consultation came along. Yes, that's true. Um, so almost I would say almost this time last year, so about um, October 2022, um, I'd started putting together a proposal for this study and outlining what the ideas were, what I wanted to achieve, why I thought um, this was an issue. So internally, there were various discussions in terms of whether we should allocate resource to this project. Unfortunately, it had been approved. So yes, it's an issue we were looking at um, long before. I think um, we had been anticipating that the issue would become more prevalent given that um, we'd seen lots of regulators. So for example, IOSCO, the Australian regulator, as I mentioned, the Dutch AFM, um, even ESMA, um, issue concern around influencers, social media for influencers, I should say. Um, so we could see this was a hot topic for regulators. However, it was also under-researched. So at the time, the study by the Dutch regulator, AFM, was the only study published we were aware of that touched on this subject. That might answer why you decided to focus on the Netherlands. Was there any particular reason you decided to focus on France and Germany as well? Some of it um, had to do with institutes, networks and connections. So because social media content is regionally customised, um, we, we knew that the types of content I might see from the UK when I complete the content analysis would be different to the content that those in different parts of the world might see. Um, however, from a resource perspective, it wouldn't be feasible for me to, let's say, fly to somewhere in Europe to test that out or... Um, there's also the language issue, unfortunately. I'm not um, trilingual, but yes. So we thought we'd maybe use some of the existing connections we had if we, as we have societies in the Netherlands, Germany and France. And there are also European markets regulated 
by ESMA. Um, so they would have a similar regulatory framework despite some local differences between them. So because the research study had um, three main parts, so the content analysis, looking at how Gen Z um, engage with um, content on social media from influencers, and the third part was the regulatory mapping. We in some ways needed comparable regulatory frameworks in different jurisdictions um, so the UK, the USA and the EU um, to, to understand some of the nuances around influencer content and whether the types of content seen was mediated by the regulations. So it sounds like you must have done a ton of legwork with these 110 sources of content. Yes, so I'd initially done some scoping research myself and I'd looked at um, the types of influencer content produced by influencers and I came up with a questionnaire which was asked to everyone in the different markets who completed um, the content analysis. And so the questionnaire had the same kinds of questions on. So it looked at the types of asset class a influencer might discuss in a video Um for example, it looked at the categorization of content, so whether it was a promotion, a recommendation or simply guidance and specific definitions were given to each of the, the individuals that helped to complete the content coding in each of the markets. Um, so the survey was built out in a consistent way, which allowed later analysis to take place. Um, so you could see at a global scale what content looked like, what the key characteristics were, but also some of the regional differences between content, not them. I found many. Wow. And how far back was the sources that you were using? So was say there a difference between before COVID and after COVID hit or it, or was that kind of going before the beginning of the study? I didn't notice any major difference um, between the types of content um, created and, and the timelines in terms of uh, recency to when the study was completed. But from speaking to Gen Z in our sample, who we spoke to about their investment habits and their interaction with influencers, they had noted that since COVID had taken place, that's when they became more engaged with influencers. Yeah, I can imagine that being home uh, and on your laptop a lot might, or on your phone a lot might do that. Yes, they, they they also noted um, something about the um, ease of doing everything on your phone. So the fact that you don't necessarily have to go down to physically see a financial advisor and um, you could invest from your phone or learn about investing from the comfort of your own home. So I think that's also had a, a role to play and potentially COVID has exacerbated that. So I was thinking that the boundaries between information, guidance, advice, et cetera, are a lot looser on social media than they would be, um, say, in printed material. So I was wondering if you could say a little bit about what you found in your study. Yes. Um, and that was um, one of the, I would say, key challenges with the study. Um, so it was important that we established firm definitions of what we were classifying as advice, guidance or recommendations, especially given that in different jurisdictions, advice, for example, is defined differently. Um, so we needed a consistent understanding. And at 
points it was difficult to tell and sometimes it came down to semantics so you would have um, some influencers who might say um, in my opinion what I would do and they would recommend something very specific they might say oh in my opinion um, I would buy this ETF Um, I think it's very good if you're at the beginning of your investment journey and I mean what um, qualifies an investment recommendation there Um, I guess it's a grey area because just because someone has said, in my opinion, um, does that caveat the fact that they've then gone on to say something very specific and recommend a specific course of action in relation to uh, security? Um, So I I think in those situations, it was challenging um, to tell. And sometimes um, they may use kind of sarcastic disclaimers to say, um, I'm not recommending this, uh, inverted commas, um, but followed by, again, something very specific. So I I guess that was a real challenge, but I'm I'm sure potentially that's something that regulators also grapple with, the the boundary between advice, guidance, etc. Yeah, no, I, I imagine they do grapple with it a lot. So you've already talked about some of the dangers uh, that you see with influencer advice, but you've probably uh, identified a lot of others as well in in your study. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about those. Sure. Um, so some of the dangers stem from the fact that influencers often don't disclose their regulatory status. So they won't say, oh, I'm a professional financial advisor. Um, sometimes they say, I'm not a professional financial advisor, um, but often they, they don't say anything. So you're, you're unsure whether they're potentially acting as a tied agent of some sort or an authorised representative, as it's known in the UK, um, or what professional standing they have. Um, So from this, we could arguably um, infer that they're not regulated. And in fact, um, in a study by the Dutch regulator, the AFM, I believe they found that the influences in their sample, um, none had authorisation to actually carry out regulated activities. So I guess that's one of the risks, because if you do act on information that isn't regulated, um, you're likely not afforded some of the same consumer protections that you would be afforded had you have taken that advice from a regulated um, professional. There's also the issue of um, competence of the person providing that advice, which I've touched on. Um, So, again, you don't know their professional standing. You don't know if if they've um, undergone any uh, professional examinations or what qualifies them to make um, recommendations or promote products. And um, just taking it back to some of CFA Institute's core values, which express that financial markets are more effective with knowledgeable and diverse participants and that the presence of high ethical principles and professional standards are essential to positive outcomes as rules and regulations, although we know they're important, they're not enough. So it often depends on the integrity of that individual. Um, Some of the other risks are the fact that information could be inaccurate, again, because um, we're uncertain of the professional standing of many influencers. We don't know if they um, have the right capacity to offer accurate and fair advice. Um, We don't know if the advice is objective. Our sample of content identified quite a high degree of hidden marketing. So you might be consuming content by an influencer and think, oh, this is simply um, neutral information, but it might 
be attached to a marketing promotion or they may go on to offer you advice or um, and make a specific recommendation. And the assumption could be that that's um, neutral, but it could actually be tied to a marketing promotion or sponsored by a company. Um, so again, you don't know that the advice that you're getting is fair and it's, I guess, not necessarily um, based on an individual circumstances because social media is so ubiquitous and some of the content creators or influencers, I should say, in our sample had over 4 million followers and they would get millions of views on their videos. So I think it's um, difficult to establish um, an individual who you probably haven't met their individual circumstance and provide advice um, based on that. So I think um, because of some of those uncertainties and particularly the lack of regulation and uncertainty around the professional standing of um, if influencers, um, they pose some key risks to um, audiences. So you might, for example, act on advice um, that is inaccurate. And again, that might come with its, its own issues. Kind of a lot of stuff. So this contrasts significantly to the CFA Institute statement on investor rights, um, which in essence covers the types of conduct buyers of financial service products are entitled to expect from financial service providers. So some of the ethical principles in the statement of investor rights cover things like your entitlement to independent and objective advice, um, to have your own interests put ahead of the professional or the organisation. In this case of influences, it could be who they're potentially partnered with to promote a product um, to disclose conflicts of interest and an understanding of an individual circumstance. So um, there is, I'd say, a significant disjuncture between some of the activities of some influencers and what CFA Institute thinks investors should be entitled to. So what kind of long-term impact could we see if action isn't taken? I think at this point, it's difficult to tell as not all regulators, uh, which we note in our study, um, record data on the number of complaints or whistleblowing activities received in relation to um, influencers. Um, so in some ways, it's difficult to quantify the scale of harm. But also we note from our study when we spoke to Gen Z investors and asked them about um, their propensity or their likelihood to act on advice by influencers, they, they shied away from answering that question. So we, we sensed some hesitation and a reluctance to admit that that they had actually been influenced. And in some studies, it's been shown that when people are actually influenced by things, they are unaware. So that there is a study referenced in the um, report that highlights that some investors who did um, act on recommendations received online were re reluctant to admit this and were, were unaware. So I think it's difficult to predict what the long-term impact might be um, from this. Um, however, uh, I think the high ethical standards and CFA institutes, part of, part of their values, they believe that high ethical standards are important in order to build investor trust and confidence and that every investor should have the opportunity to earn a fair return. And this is difficult to achieve um, when individuals and entities fall outside of the scope of regulations you find that for you yourself, having done this study and learned all of this, that when you yourself look at uh, things on social media, not necessarily financial ones, but just people's statements that you are a bit more skeptical or that it's changed how you look at how what you see and read? That's a good question. I think 
I've I've always tried to be a bit skeptical. Maybe that's why I came up with the idea of the study. Um, I think it's in some ways re- reaffirmed my sense that you shouldn't necessarily take things that you see online as face value. I mean, in some ways culturally social media has sort of become a highlight reel and where things aren't um, necessarily real and there are fabrications and in some ways um, that's potentially no different to what you might see in the influencer realm where things aren't always what it seems whether that's hidden marketing or someone telling you this investment product might change your life and that might may or may not turn out to be true. Um, So I think it's probably reaffirmed my sense of suspicion and not to trust things at face value, but also the importance to critically assess um, content you see if you can. I know that's probably not always possible when you look at the speed that people scroll on social media and um, the many platforms there are and people often use it in their leisure time to have a quick scroll when you're not necessarily... um, cognizant to to what's happening around you or even in front of you. Um, So um, I think it's probably, yes, uh, reinforced my sense to just critically evaluate where possible. So how do you think that the activities of influencers impact investment professionals? I think that very much again, depends on the extent to which um, individuals act on advice given by uh, influencers. Um, I think if people are acting on advice given by influencers, then there is potential that influencers may have an unfair competitive advantage over a professional advisor who is conducting themselves fairly and adhering to ethical standards um, because social media is free. And by contrast, in most cases, if you wanted to see a financial professional or professional advisor, you would have to pay for some of their time. Um, but there's also potentially a consideration of age here. So the advice gap for young people, as identified in our study and, and other studies, um, is um, significant. Um, so most in our study didn't actually consult with a professional financial advisor themselves. Um, a few did, but these were mostly their, their parents who they um, informally sought advice from. It's maybe difficult to tell, but there is the potential that as young people grow accustomed to managing their own finances themselves and use sources such as social media, influencers, etc., that um, they may feel they have less of a need to use a professional financial advisor. So um, potentially there's a challenge for the advice industry, but I wouldn't be assertive about saying that. So it sounds like people who are less knowledgeable and more vulnerable are the group that are most influenced by influencers and therefore have the most potential to be harmed by them. Influencers are where young people spend their time, which is social media. Um, so, so yes, there is a potential for harm, and especially because of some of those characteristics of Gen Z investors who are also um, more, more prone to taking risks than older investors. Sounds like your study was really topical and really important. 
Yes, I think they seem to be a concern for regulators across the globe because social media is, in essence, borderless. So even from our research, we identified that if you were based in the UK, you're capable of viewing content that was created in the US, for example, potentially because of the shared language, but different jurisdictions still have different um, regulatory frameworks. However, the social media content from Finfluencers didn't seem to fit neatly within those boundaries. Yeah, I think that's a general issue with all sorts of things on social media, the sort of boundarylessness nature of. Yes. So thank you very much, Serena, for chatting to me, and thank you to everyone for listening. Remember to look out for the next episode of our In Conversation podcast through the usual CFA UK email and social media channels. You can also subscribe so that you don't miss an episode through CFA UK's SoundCloud channel or Apple Podcasts. Thank you. Thank you.